Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston. Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. So Jeff, in this month's episode, what we have is a patient with anal cancer and HIV disease, which we'll talk to Paul Sachs, who's from our HIV infectious disease unit here, and also talk to Harvey Mammon about the NIGRO protocol and how you can use it for anal cancer and how it's evolved from the original form with a sort of a lower radiation dose to a higher radiation dose. And I think this is a topic that really has seen change but not seen change, and, and it's, but it's obviously a very successful treated cancer in the GI world, and, and, and HIV is a relative increased risk factor, so knowing how to treat those patients aggressively since it has a very high cure rate can be important. I'll introduce the patient with the history and physical, and then we'll speak to Harvey and then go on to Paul, and then you and I can discuss what, what they told us. The patient that is the focus of today's episode is a man that became HIV positive in the 90s. He then was started on heart therapy. Heart therapy stands for highly active antiretroviral therapy. The therapy drove down his viral load and raised up his CD4 counts. He then began to have problems with HPV disease of the anal area and had a series of biopsies and removal of condyloma, all benign, but with precancerous changes of AIN starting in 2005. A recent series of biopsies in the operating room and removal of skin tags showed that the area of AIN and condyloma had converted in one area to a small anal carcinoma. Today's discussion will then focus on the radiation therapy, its history, and how it can be modified for patients with either very small lesions or very large lesions. And then we'll speak with Dr. Sachs of our HIV infectious disease group about some of the history of patients with HIV and the current management of HIV as patients are treated for cancer, particularly anal cancer. So Harvey, tell us uh, again your, your title and your background. So I'm a radiation oncologist. I've been doing GI cancer at the Brigham and Dana-Farber since 1998. Anal cancer is among the diseases that I frequently treat. So we had a patient presented in our conference who was an HIV-positive man who was noted to have condyloma back in the mid-2000s, was seen and follow-up, seen at that time, and then went to a different institution for some follow-up and then came back to us about 15 months ago. At that time, he had several condyloma. Uh, These were removed. Some of them had AIN, and he was told that he should have follow-up because there was probably several others that would also need to be removed at a second surgery. That was postponed, and he came back recently, had the remainder of the condyloma removed, other biopsies, and was found to have a 3-millimeter invasive cancer. 
Do you treat uh, patients who have a three millimeter cancer different than those with a, let's say, a three or four centimeter cancer? Yes and no, I guess, is, is the answer. We do customize the treatment, but maybe not as much as we should, and, uh, and I'll explain why. So as you know very well, the first Nigro paper back in 1974 treated to 3,000 centigrade in three weeks with three patients, with five of you in mitomycin C, one, with one cycle. And the, the three patients did very well, and then the next publication was um, nine years later with about 30 patients with similar treatment, and then the dose started to, to creep up so that now the dose range is more between 45 and, and 59 gray. There are a few small papers, all series, no randomized trials, going back to that time period. Larry Leishman has one, there's another British one, that say these very early tumors seem to do well with the original dose of a single cycle or maybe even two cycles but a lower dose of radiation and so you can make a case that there is some data to support doing that the problem is starting with the earliest randomized trials which happened around the same time in the UK and the United States the UK CCR which is now called Act 1 they didn't call it Act 1 until there was an Act 2 but now they call that one Act 1 um, and, and the RTOG trials, they, their floor dose was 45 gray in the randomized trials, and both the NCCN guidelines and the European, uh, there's an ESMO-ESTRO joint statement that came out a couple of years ago, also described 45 as the lowest dose for a T1N0 tumor, um, and going up to higher doses for larger tumors. So, it's a little bit of a, a, a conundrum because there are data that suggest these patients with the early tumors will do okay with a lower dose, but they are really more case series and um, retrospective studies, whereas the randomized data, all of the randomized trials and the major guidelines don't go below 45. So since, you know, if you fail, it's an APR, I've been nervous to go below 45. I do it occasionally, but only if it's a really infirm patient that I just think is gonna have a lot of trouble um, getting, getting through the treatment. But for somebody who I think is gonna tolerate the treatment, I'll certainly stop at 45 or, or no higher than 50 for a patient like this, whereas I'll go to 54 or 59 for a five centimeter tumor with big nodes. So I do have a range, it's not everybody gets the same dose. But given the, the situation of the, the existing guidelines and all of the randomized trials, in a patient who I think can tolerate 45, I haven't really been going lower than that, even though I know there are studies that suggest it might be okay. And what's the difference to the patient uh, between 30 gray and 45 gray? Is there a lot of extra morbidity? Yeah, yeah again, I haven't been treating much lower than 45, but. But you know we follow these patients pretty closely during treatment, and it's around 45 when the skin desquamation and the toxicity starts to kick in. So certainly, if we stopped at 30, you know we know we would see less toxicity without a doubt. At least you know I'm not sure it would change late effects, because I think they mostly do okay long term. But without a doubt, the acute toxicity would be more manageable. It'd be easier for the patients. 
Now, I don't know if you remember 15, 20 years ago when the HIV patients started living longer, and that's when we started seeing the condyloma and the anal cancers. We weren't really too sure how they would tolerate the traditional chemoradiation therapy. Now we have heart therapy. Uh, they have long, uh, almost, there's really no, if they respond to heart therapy, I don't think there's really any life expectancy diminishment. How do you look at the patients now that are HIV positive, and what's been your experience in their tolerance? You know, as you said, we've been around before the days of heart. And when we had anal cancer patients in those days, and there weren't that many because they were dying of other things before they got anal cancer. Exactly. The opportunistic infections, but there were some, and they had an awful time getting through treatment. We basically had to dose reduce or eliminate the mitomycin. We had to lower the dose of radiation. They still had terrible reactions and, and had a lot of trouble getting through treatment. Um, and had a very poor outcome. But HEART changed that completely, and there are, are multiple trials now, if not trials, at least you know, case reports in the literature, as well as our own experience, that with a zero or low viral titer and a CD4 count, some studies say 200, others say 400, but a, a robust CD4 count, all of these studies, and, and I would agree with this from our own personal experience, you can treat an HIV patient as if they didn't have HIV they get through the treatment just fine. Um, and the studies also suggest their outcomes are just as good. You might worry about them doing worse because of competing risks, but they live a long time and, they, and their cure rate seems to be very similar to patients without HIV. So we do have the occasional situation where somebody comes in with poorly controlled HIV, sort of been out of the medical system. What my practice has always been in that situation is before starting treatment, is to refer them to infectious disease, get them on heart. Usually within a month or so, they start to respond. And I think it's better to, you know, anal cancer doesn't tend to be the fastest growing cancer. Right. And I think, you know, the benefit of getting their HIV under control, getting their CD4 count up, is much greater than anything you lose by delaying the start of the chemo radiation. Right, that's very helpful. Uh, we here in Boston have a very compliant HIV population. What I mean by compliance is they they take their heart therapy, uh, heart therapy, you know, heart being highly active antiretroviral therapy on a regular basis, uh, and it's I think it's different than other communities in the U.S. And so it's not been a that situation, which you know, I remember from a few years ago, having a patient like that, is rare. Um, and and also the their follow up in terms of uh, AIN anal intraepithelial neoplasia is also very good. So, like on this patient, you catch it early. Uh, um, so, uh, any other uh, pearls for our listening uh, listeners on on this particular? Uh, early sort of anal cancer patient? No, I think, you know, there's a whole controversy about the best way to follow these patients because you worry a lot about the AIN patients, especially with high grade. Um, the literature that I suggest, I've seen is that the conversion rate to, to invasive disease is a little bit lower than I would have expected because it seems everybody I've ever seen, within a few years, they do have 
invasive disease, although the literature says it's not that many. I get the question a lot is why can't you treat high-grade AIN? You know, you treat DCIS for breast cancer. Um, it would probably respond. And, you know, basically the answer I always give is, well, it might work, but we just don't have data. Right. And so I don't really want to put, it's a pretty toxic treatment. I don't want to, I don't feel justified putting somebody through the treatment if we don't know that it works. So we typically follow patients closely, just like this man you're describing. And the first biopsy that shows unambiguous invasive disease, that's when we kind of pull the trigger and do the chemo radiation. And as you say, they would certainly get a, a, a lower dose mm-hmm. than somebody who presents with a, a big five centimeter mass to begin with with those. Yeah, I think one of the things that AIN doesn't kill people. The data we've seen is that probably the conversion rate is even less than cervical intrapsial neoplasia. And so, we, unfortunately, we can't go in like with the cervix and burn the lining of the anal canal and have it you know, regrow as sort of normal mucosa. So we don't have that option, but it is rare. I see the denominator. You just see the numerator. It is rare to see a patient like uh, the one we're talking about convert from AIN3 to, to cancer. So I think that you know we continue to have a biopsy suspicious areas not do blind biopsy policy because as i said ain is really not a disease it's a it's a it's something that we precursor exactly so um and finally you talked about one of our conferences about the sort of the newer way to do radiation therapy is it modulated uh imrt yeah yes Right, so I'll talk about why we do it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this case, which was a bit of a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. The first generation of radiation was called 2D, and that's because it was based on basically setting up fields based on plain, plain X-ray films. Mm-hmm. And it was a little bit more than 2D because we had, we had PPA films and lateral films, and we could combine them, so it wasn't quite really two-dimensional, but, but the imaging was two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. And then the big advance, which already is very old is going to CT-based planning, which is which is three-dimensional, and that was a, a really large change. A more, a more incremental change was from 3D to IMRT, which stands for Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy, and that allows tailoring the dose more precisely uh, for a couple of reasons. What the name implies, the intensity modulation, is that Whereas with regular 3D planning, each beam is a fixed beam, and, and the, the dose that comes out of that beam is, is, this, is, is consistent from that beam. With intensity modulation, from within each beam, the, the leaves that shape, that shape the, the radiation that comes out of the machine are changing in real time while that beam is on, and that allows tailoring the dose more precisely blocking parts of the field that are treating normal tissue for part of the time, leaving open the part of the field that's directly targeting the tumor. And when you do multiple fields with all of that variability, you can get a more precisely sculpted shape of the radiation field. There's also something that's beyond that that's not implied in the name. It also involves inverse treatment planning. It's a kind of artificial intelligence, whereas with standard planning, the the physicist will look at the tumor and put on the beams from different directions and shape them and then do trial and error and weight different beams with different relative strengths to get the, a nice conformal dose around the tumor. 
and span the normal tissue around it. With inverse treatment planning, they tell the computer, this is what we want the tumor to get. We don't want the small bowel to go above this dose. We don't want the femoral heads to go above that dose. And the computer comes up with the, the beams and the, and the weighting and, and, and the shapes. Then of course you have to tweak it a little bit, but it's, it's a lot of uh, really computer designed treatment. And, and putting all of these tools together, you can sculpt out a, a much more precisely shaped high dose area right around the tumor. The downside is you do get more lower dose farther away because you're using more beams from different directions. In anal cancer, there's no randomized data that IMRT is better. There's really one single arm prospective phase two trial from the RTOG. It's RTOG 0529. And it was frankly a negative trial in terms of its endpoints because the endpoints were decreased GI and GU toxicity and tall and basically feasibility. Can, can, could people do this accurately? And it was negative on both. The GI and GU toxicity wasn't particularly better. The radiation therapists who participated uh, mostly did a terrible job and the f about 80% of the plans needed to be redone to meet acceptable limits. So you could say, well, if it was such a negative trial, why did it become the standard of care? And that's, you know, I think part of it is the, the learning curve. I think now that more people are trained in IMRT, people are able to do it better. And it did have some positive endpoints. The main one was less skin toxicity. Mm -hmm. And what skin toxicity really meant was genital toxicity because in the prior generation, there was a, a highly weighted field from the anterior direction, which went straight through the, the genitals in, in, in both, both men and women that increased toxicity. With IMRT, you don't need to have a field from that direction, and you can designate, designate the genitals as, a, as an avoidance structure and, and lower the dose to that area, and that does make the treatment more tolerable, and it makes it more likely patients will get through without requiring a treatment break. Mm -hmm. Generally desirable, although, but all things being equal, you'd rather not have a break, so less skin toxicity is a good thing. The, and, and that's kind of where it is. So pretty much everybody who treats anal cancer these days uses IMRT and uses a field that spares the genitals because that's actually the main benefit of IMRT. Right. So I had a recent patient, it's kind of like you're talking, it wasn't a typical Boston patient. It was somebody who came from another country, had very poor, very little access to medical care, and came in with a very, very advanced tumor. Mm -hmm. That not only was the tumor very large, but there were bilateral three or four centimeter inguinal lymph nodes that were very FDG avid. And I did my usual thing. I, I contoured out all of the gross disease and put a margin around it but still spared the, uh, the vulva, it was a woman. And she came back about six months later, all of the treated disease was gone. So she had a great response. The vulva wasn't, you can't completely block it, but it got about 60% of the prescribed dose, which did make the treatment more tolerable. But she came back with multiple metastases on the vulva that were very painful and very morbid and very hard to manage that we ended up doing a second course of palliative radiation for. And in retrospect, looking back at the case, I think maybe IMRT wasn't the right thing to do because if there's that much disease in the inguinal regions bilaterally, 
probably some lymphatics are traveling through Correct. the right vulva up. as mm -hmm. well, yes. and that area should have gotten the full dose. So it's a chance that's sort of there where you can your technology can get out ahead of you right? if you don't really think through the biology of the disease. Well, that was excellent in terms of explaining IMRT uh, because, you know, it's a term that gets thrown around, and I think a lot of non-radiation therapists nod their head when we hear it, but there may be uh, times when you may not want to use it. Uh, we've had actually two vaginal um, recurrences in the past year. Both patients with advanced cancers that have come from the outside. In our conferences, we may want to you know, think out of the box for that specific niche of patients. So, great. Thanks, Harvey. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. afternoon. Thanks for agreeing to um, uh, doing this uh, podcast. Paul is an infectious disease doctor here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital with a wonderful office. And uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, how uh, you got to the Brigham and your and sort of your rank here. Sure, yeah. sure. I, I, um, I started working in the Division of Infectious Diseases as an ID and HIV specialist in the early 1990s. So I got here in 1992. And at the time, um, and all during my ID fellowship, HIV was essentially a death sentence. It was the most common cause of death among young Americans ages 25 to 40. And, you know, the from the time of diagnosis of AIDS to death was estimated to be 18 to 24 months. And that was sort of our, our life. We were living that. And then starting in 1996. So that's how you got introduced to infectious right, disease exactly, medicine. Yeah. Exactly. And it was mostly managing opportunistic infections and very aggressive malignancies. Um, the patients could be healthy for a few years if they were diagnosed before they had AIDS, but a lot of them ended up getting progressively more immunodeficient and then, and then dying. And so overall, their care, and just as it relates to surgeons, is their, their surgical care was complicated by the fact that they were sick at baseline and obviously operating on sick patients is higher risk. You know, they had more infectious complications, they had longer recovery times, etc. Everything changed in the mid-1990s. 1996 is the key year. That's the year we had effective antiretroviral therapy. I don't like to use the term heart, but I use the term art because now yeah. all treatment is as effective as that. And if you fast forward now to today, essentially all of our patients who are able to take their medicines can be successfully treated for HIV. They're no longer dying of diseases of immunodeficiency. Their, their, their albumin's normal, they're not wasting away. In fact, we have an obesity epidemic. And we were joking when we were chatting before, it's easier to treat HIV than it is to treat hypertension or diabetes. The medicines work that well. And the only people that we have trouble with are the ones who are non-compliant. And that's really a very small fraction of the total number of people in care. So what we're looking at now is a disease that if diagnosed before people are have low CD4 cell counts, people who go on treatment, that their estimated survival is actually comparable to the general population. It's measured in decades rather than in, in months to years. So, so a really huge change. Well, one of the things that has changed in our colorectal practice is that no one lived long enough to really get the precancerous anal lesions and then the anal cancers, but now that's a large part of our practice is following people with these anal lesions and we recently diagnosed a man on a series of biopsies with a three millimeter anal cancer. Now his CD4 counts in the, uh, above 400. His viral load is just detected at about 100. Yeah. What is 
the, the medical oncologist or the radiation therapist have to adapt or change what they are going to recommend to this patient? So let me take the second one first. Radiation oncologists, absolutely not. If he's taking his antiretroviral therapy and he has a CD4 second that's sort of moderately high uh, and a low HIV viral load, and usually it's lower than 100, but even if it's around 100 intermittently, people can have detectable viral loads, no change to radiation therapy. The key thing with the medical oncologists is that many of the HIV treatments have significant drug-drug interactions. In particular, the class of drugs that are called the protease inhibitors, mm -hmm. uh, because they are administered with what are known as pharmacokinetic boosters that block metabolism of many, many drugs, including sometimes drugs that are used in anesthesia and also sometimes drugs that are used in chemotherapy. So it's very, very important that the oncologist work closely with the infectious disease specialist to scrutinize the drug-drug interactions. Otherwise, they can give full-dose chemotherapy and, and really treat the patients very much like they're HIV negative. Right. Yeah, they get mitomycin C and 5-FU, uh, which is, it's interesting, anal cancer had, that is the original. Then they tried to branch out into, I think, cisplatinum to substitute for mitomycin C, but it's never been shown to be really better mm -hmm. than the, the therapy that was initially uh, used, you know, 30, 30 years ago now. And what about in terms of wound healing, uh, when we do uh, anal surgery, we have not really perceived any increase in yeah. infections, but is there data to show that there's an increase in infections? So there's an increase in infections for patients who are not on HIV therapy. So, uh, you know, the, the patients I worry about getting surgery of all sorts are the ones who don't take their HIV medicines or who are newly diagnosed with very advanced HIV-related immunosuppression. Those are patients who have much more trouble with surgery. So the people who are taking their HIV therapy, as I mentioned before, they have normal albumins, they're not wasting, they, they're going to heal just fine from surgical procedures, and they should really uh, be considered a, a very much like an HIV-negative patient. So. Yeah. Any other sort of cautionary uh, uh, pearls for the surgeon, the radiation, or the medical oncologist with this population? You know, uh, most of the patients are extremely good at taking their, their antiretrovirals, and so if they get admitted to the hospital, they themselves are, are very vigilant about not missing doses of their medicines, and I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that the hospital follows through on that. If they skip for a day or so, maybe just warn them ahead, look, you might have to not take your medicines for one or two days. That's not harmful to people, but, but medication errors, uh, really get picked up quickly by the patients uh, during hospitalization. I don't know how long people are hospitalized for your procedures now, probably pretty short. Yes, yeah, yeah right. So. It's, it's in the in the two to four day range yep. on elective surgery, yes. longer for emergency surgery. Right. Um, and emergency surgery is uh, really not, not part uh, of really this. a cancer uh, sort of, unless they perforate or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And then we can talk another time about the whole controversy over AIN, yeah. conversion rates of AIN, which is anal intraepithelial neoplasia, to uh, cancer, mm -hmm. detecting it, screening for it, surveying for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll just give you a quick summary of where the field stands, according to ID and HIV specialists. If you and you, if you look at our guidelines, the Department of Health and Human Services guidelines in their prevention of opportunistic infections, etc do not have a strong recommendation to do anal cancer screening even though they acknowledge 
that anal cancer is more common in people who are HIV positive. They say the quality of the evidence is not sufficient yet to make a strong recommendation. That's one set of guidelines. There's another set of guidelines put out by the Infectious Disease Society of America that does recommend screening for anal dysplasia and then referral to high-resolution anoscopy if you get an abnormality. They acknowledge that the quality of evidence is low, but they are probably persuaded by some very, uh, very um, influential practitioners who say that this should be standard of care. I think we're in an area of uh, some uncertainty, and frankly, I can tell you it is an area that makes us a bit uncomfortable because, for example, the guidelines don't say how often the screening should be done. It's not, things are not as well established as they are, for example, in cervical cancer screening, and that is the obvious analogy. So we're all kind of a little uncomfortable with, the, with, the, with, with how to screen for anal dysplasia. Uh, I would say the field is moving towards doing it more and more. What we lack is really evidence that that screening practice does prevent cancer. So Jeff, that was an interesting talk by uh, Dr. Sachs, our colleague, and uh, Harvey uh, from Radiation Therapy about how things have evolved in an amazing way over the last 20 years where HIV was a death sentence and now it's just another disease that we have people come in and we are treating it and we have to then treat their cancer with a well-treated uh, HIV uh, disease. I was going to ask you a question. Have you had problems in the last few years after heart therapy has become standardized with giving medications to the HIV patients that have low viral loads and, and uh, high CD4 counts? No, I mean, really, in the last several years, it, it really is a non-issue that their HIV status and the, whether they, uh, what therapies they're on. Certainly, the regimen that has been used in the Nigro protocol, 5-FU-amidomycin, has a significant leukopenia and neutropenia rate, particularly mitomycin. And so that certainly was a concern even 10, certainly 15 years ago, uh, where patients with HIV would have a much higher infectious rate uh, risk uh, because of lack of control for some of, of their CD4 count and, and viral load. But it is, I mean, I can't remember the last patient I had that where they haven't had very good control of their disease, which really makes, as you said, the HIV to some degree a non-issue for related to their anal cancer. And the really important thing is aggressively treating their anal cancer with curative intent. And it is a protease inhibitor, these uh, um, heart therapy medications. We see a little bit of interaction with some of the pain medications and some of the anesthetics, but we know them now. We know these interactions, so it's, we can easily choose other equivalent uh, medications in terms of their efficacy and avoid the ones that interact with the protease inhibitors. Do you know of any... Uh, with colon, rectal, or anal cancer, of any of the medications that, that give you a problem? Yeah, not, not with the chemotherapies used for those diseases. So again, for anal cancer, it's really 5-FU and mitomycin if it's not metastatic. And, but the full FOX, the full FURY, and the other regimens used for colon and rectal cancer are, are, are really not an issue with uh, the current art therapy. Well, it's been a real success story, both the treatment of anal cancer with extremely high rates of cure, low rates of uh, complications, and then also the parallel story of the success with HIV uh, treatment. 
if you have a compliant patient, then as uh, Dr. Sachs said, you, you, you almost it's easier to treat than uh, hypertension because you have a very good metric to measure your success with the low viral load and the CD4 count. Right, and a, and a much easier disease for patients to be treated. I mean, it used to be therapy for HIV was four or five times a day of taking pills, and, and now uh, for most regimens it's just a single pill a day for you know one or two of those uh, uh, medications, but just once a day uh, dosing, which makes it much easier. So, well, a real success, a success story. Thank you for listening to our eighth episode. Check back in the next four weeks for episode number nine. And to enhance your listening experience, please visit us at howwetreat.org. At that site, you can contact us and you can send us your clinical questions. Again, thanks from the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute.